Where do we even start? A conversation about fashion, starting a career, and being a 20-something with hosts Alex, Chloe, and Erica. Welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about secrets of the fashion industry. We're going to touch on several larger topics that we plan to dive deeper into in dedicated episodes in the future. It's This or That! For today's This or That, it's Instagram or TikTok. Oh, Alex, why? (laughs) I'm Instagram Um, all the way. Instagram as well. Whoa, why are you trying to switch up on me like this? I'm kind of torn between the two right now, but I'm going to say TikTok. They're just better videos. <laughs> so I'm going to start off today's topic with what is something you guys didn't notice or didn't understand about the fashion industry until you were more immersed in it? I think the biggest thing is how much planning actually goes into a collection and the clothing that you actually like buying from the rack. Mm-hmm. Mine is similar. Um, finally understanding the process of how it goes from idea to actually being created to being sold. Mm-hmm. It's hard to understand that from the consumer perspective. Yeah. Mine is that there is a job for everything. Color mm-hmm. is a dedicated job. Um, fit is a dedicated job. Everything that's in the design process and the production process is a separate job. Mm -hmm. I'm jumping to a whole other category now. I'm bringing (laughs) up the topic of forecasting. So how does forecasting work? Um, People often compare it to like weather forecasting, which in a way, if you think about it, it's really similar because you look at like the trends and patterns from seasons before and see if it'll apply to now so do you get just one even wanted to like describe how forecasting works so before we get into forecasting i think we need to talk about something called the zeitgeist my favorite word (laughs) (laughs) so the zeitgeist is referring to what is happening in the now and what is happening in the current time and that can be what's happening economically, politically, socially. Um, Right now, we are having a lot go on with the zeitgeist, with uh, COVID and Black Lives Matter and um, all the political things going on in the U.S. and in Canada. So we have a very strong zeitgeist, but every time period has one, and that's what we use to look forward and to predict what people are going to want, and what the world is going to look like in the future. Mm -hmm. Companies who primarily do forecasting can forecast up to five years in advance of a season, and then companies typically um, do more two to three years in advance, which goes along with their design schedule. And forecasts can come from a bunch of places. Some have a forecaster dedicated, that's their position in the company, or companies subscribe to services like WGSN 
where they pay to see what other industry individuals are projecting will be on trend in the upcoming seasons. And to go kind of more into that, WGSN is an online forecasting service which allows you to take a look up to five years in advance of colors, fabrics, um, and silhouette design. And they split it into men's, women's, children's, boys and girls, gender neutral. And um, you can look at tons of different things, including shoes and accessories. Mm -hmm. Not only fashion, it's all design fields. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and forecasting is actually one of the reasons why at different stores you see a lot of the same things. So same silhouettes, same colors happening, same prints happening. It's because all of these companies are looking to the same resources to figure out what they're going to be making every season. So when you think that like, oh, how are these companies all making the same thing? Well, it actually just comes down to the fact that they're using the same resources year -hmm. year after year. Yeah, they're not necessarily all knocking each other off when everything coincidentally comes out at the same time. Mm -hmm. So a forecaster's job is to essentially look at the zeitgeist and move forwards from there. Um, Tying onto it, um, how long are things done in advance? Like the forecasting, the sourcing, and the design. So that all depends on the company. Yeah, a lot of companies work two years in advance and some... And different jobs within a company, like if you're looking at fabric, sometimes that even goes four years ahead of when you're actually seeing the clothes on the rack. So it really depends not only on the company, but the department that you're um, working in. And then not only are they working two years in advance, but they're working to like one to two years in advance for every single season. So at any given time in the year, you're working on three, it's three seasons at a time, right? Yeah, so you're working on probably spring, summer, and fall all at once. And then next thing you're working on summer, fall, winter. And then some companies even do a holiday collection. So that's a fifth season that you're adding on to your already four seasons of the year. So lots of things to think about with forecasting that way. And so many companies have different seasons Some companies have two seasons. They have Mm -hmm. spring, summer, and fall, winter. Some have four, a spring, a summer, a fall, and a winter. And Mm -hmm. some have up to to 52 seasons. That's a whole other thing. Like uh, more fast fashion companies, um, they'll have a new collection coming out every two weeks. And that's only for like one department. So that's like girls 7 to 14. And then there's all of this stuff like that. Moving forward, we kind of touched on fast fashion, which I feel like we can dive back into, but I'm going to bring up price. Does price mean it's better quality? Does it mean workers are paid more? And what influence does brand image have on pricing? So should we break that down a little bit and first go into fast fashion and costing? Yeah. So let's talk fast fashion and pricing. Like the condensed version. We're going to do a whole episode on fast fashion one day. We could talk for hours. 
R.I.P. Forever 21. And I think that looking at fast fashion and looking at their costing margins, you would think that that the price that you are paying gets distributed evenly throughout the entire production line when really, unfortunately, that is a false um, idea. A lot of the profit from a garment goes to the corporate level employees and designers and very little is put directly back into the production of the garment including the fabric and shipping and um, production and also the consumer looking to purchase cheaper products unfortunately from the consumer is the push to find cheaper Mm -hmm. manufacturing and cheaper laborers and that type of thing so even if you think you're getting a great deal on your end think of the true cost which is a great movie that everyone should watch um it's available i believe on amazon prime amazon prime yeah um, unfortunately, not on Netflix anymore, but it is a great documentary to mm-hmm. watch. Um, yeah, and kind of just think about how you're voting with your money yeah. in terms yes. of what you are supporting. So we answered it, like, does, if it's more expensive mean it's better quality? Not necessarily. It could be. Yeah. And it does not mean that workers are paid more. But what influence do you guys think that a brand would have on um, the price. Like we won't call out brands, but like if the logo is printed on it or just it's in the back neck of the tag, what influence would that have on price? And why would a consumer be more inclined to pay 50% more just because it's a certain brand? Brand image is a huge industry all in itself. So if you're, brand can create an image of prestige and importance you can put your logo on a three dollar t-shirt and sell it for 75 dollars whereas you could get the same t-shirt from i was gonna say a volunteering event that somebody's printed their their uh logo on the front of a t-shirt or something that you get for free Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a really big thing there's a lot of companies actually that do a really good job of using branding and it's just the whole idea that when people see that logo or when they see that tag or whatever it is that's on the clothing they assume that you have money and they assume like that you like live a good life basically Mm -hmm. yeah what if people tie their identity to brands feels good to have their logo. 
Um, this episode is really funny in the way I want to touch on so many things and we could talk for on so many of these topics. Which if you guys hear if you guys hear a topic that you want us to circle back to and do a dedicated video, let us know on our Instagram and we will make sure to put it into our schedule. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um moving forward from price, we're now in the sustainability section. We're in my section. Oh! Um <laughs> Why are sustainable clothes so expensive? I feel like that is a secret of the fashion industry when companies are trying to be transparent, but still when at Forever 21, you can get your $5 t-shirt. Why does what looks like a similar t-shirt cost $80 at a sustainable company? There's a whole long process of that t-shirt before it gets into your hands. And I think that production is the major place where it costs more to produce ethically and sustainably. I'm kind of bringing ethical um, factors into this, Alex. So when you're looking at producing um, sustainability or sustainably, you would start by looking at your fabric. So is the cotton that you are purchasing, is it organic? Are the Okeotech standards being met for that? Is the dye house, which is dyeing your fabric, is it in a closed loop circuit, which means that the dyes aren't being let out into a water system near the area? Are things being taken care of and being done with the environment and with And that alone, putting those procedures into effect costs more. Yeah. And I think touching on the whole ethics thing, I I personally believe that ethics is a huge part of sustainability because part of being sustainable is like making sure that the people that are working for you can actually afford to have to live and to feed their families, to clothe their families, to pay rent and all of those kinds of things. So And that's one of the things that drives up the price of clothing so much is just paying your workers a fair wage and also having proper working conditions for your workers at all the different levels. So from where your fibers come from to where the fibers are dyed to where they're turned into fabric to where they're sewn together, all of those things, that's what makes it cost so much more is just treating people like people. Um, I think the word ethical is so interesting the more you think about it because it really is such an umbrella term because Mm -hmm. it's so subjective to the brand and their ethics everyone kind of has their own idea in their head of what ethical means but it could be working conditions exploitation fair trade sustainability production the environment animal welfare and yeah it's open to interpretation depending on the company's ethics so that is something to mm-hmm. dig into when you see a company says ethical and sustainable. Those are very big words. Yeah. And for a lot of ethical brands, that bigger price tag is there because they are paying a living wage to their employees that work yeah. in their production system. So if you think, for example, the minimum wage here is... 14 14 something 14 let's go 1475 let's just say that yeah I think um it is. 
So let's say that your em, your production employees are being paid fourteen seventy five an hour. That means that that's an hour for somebody to sew that garment together. It may be ten minutes for somebody to cut out that shirt. Um, then you have someone who is ironing or heat setting and that might be another 10 minutes of work and then you look at the person who might be putting in tags um Mm -hmm. screen printing things on that could be another half an hour of work possibly and then you think of people in warehouses and fulfillment facilities where they are packaging those or they're bringing them into warehouses and that could be another 10 15 minutes of work all in itself Mm -hmm. and that right there is like 30 to 40 dollars of work yeah just in costs for paying people a fair living wage Mm -hmm. so when you look at that t-shirt and it's 60 dollars you have to understand where that money is going and when they claim to be ethical what they are promising you they are doing yeah and i also wanted to say like most of the brands that like i would consider ethical and sustainable when I look at the price tag, I personally don't think that they're expensive. I think that I'm really like getting what I'm paying for. You know what I mean? Like when you actually think about, because I guess I'm a person that considers all of the things that go into my clothes, not just like comparing it to other prices that I see. So when I look at clothes that are maybe like a hundred dollars plus, I don't see them as like super expensive. I see them as people are being paid fair wages and people are able to like make a living so and I think when we say cheap um or cheaper expensive that is obviously a very subjective look but we are looking when we say cheap and expensive in this context we are looking at the consumer um ideal where cheaper is better and you want to buy something for the least price mm-hmm. Highest perceived value for lowest cost. Yeah. So I think that it's all in the eye of the beholder with yeah. expensive and cheap and high quality. Sustainable, low quality. ethical. Yes, exactly. Honestly, I- so many terms that we use in the fashion industry are completely subjective to the person that's hearing them and how they interpret the words. Like Which is why we have standards and mm-hmm. um different certifications that hold people to a high standard and allow them to um, to prove to third-party um, consumers that they are doing what they say they're doing. Mm-hmm. You guys brought up my next topic, which oh. is buzzwords and greenwashing. <laughs> Our favorite. <laughs> when you see like a word like sustainable on it, it makes the person feel good about buying the thing that they're buying, even if it isn't truly sustainably made. When you see the word that you feel good about making that purchase, you feel like you're doing the right thing and you're making the world a better place with the purchase. And I should define greenwashing. It is when uh, it's a marketing approach to using buzzwords that make it appear as though your company is environmentally progressive? Is that the right way to define it? 
Um, and yeah, eco-friendly is a great term, a buzzword that is used for greenwashing where it catches the consumer's eyes. They think they're doing the right thing because it looks environmentally friendly, but nothing is certifying them or holding the company to the standards that they say they are at. That's the right way to say it. Yeah. And I think organic is another um, yes. greenwashing buzzword. And we even see that with the um, shopping local and buying organic, organic, I'm using um, air quotes for our <laughs> listeners, um, because there are so many different terms or different ideas of organic. And what does that mean to the consumer versus what does that mean to the company? You could be buying something that you believe is organic because it was produced without pesticides and is non-GMO, but we don't know what is being put in that soil that could make it non-organic mm-hmm. or what is occurring in the environment around that area, yeah. which could make it non-organic. And I think kind of adding on to that point, a lot of the times like people read a tag on clothing and they believe the tag, but sometimes the tag isn't like the whole truth behind what's actually being done to the garment or what's in the garment. Like, the, my best example is things that say that they are 100% recycled from, pl- like, made from 100% recycled plastic bottles. This is probably, this is the easiest way to put it. Just because it says that they're made from recycled bottles doesn't mean that somebody has actually used the bottle, mm-hmm. drank out of it, and then put it in the recycling. There was this whole big scandal. I'm not sure when it happened. Companies were literally manufacturing bottles to recycle them and make them into clothes. So just because something says that like it's made from recycled goods doesn't mean that they're post-consumer. So that's a whole other thing to consider. Like, is the tag telling you the whole truth? Uh, Hang tag is the piece of marketing that comes on a garment and it may have a little description, whether that is about the company, about how to use the product, or what is in the product. Those are for marketing purposes. They might have information about the garment, but double check their facts. Look at the uh, content list in your garment. Look at what those certifications actually mean that are on those that are on those hang tags because some of the certifications yeah they have really great things that they hold people's standards to but some aspects of what they're talking about slip through the cracks so being able to see truly what it is um through that marketing on that hang tag and completely aside from fiber content where something is made the there's laws for labeling garments. And it's really interesting that you only have to label the final production origin. So that's why a lot of garments just say made in China, but it's so interesting that how many places the textile has to travel to the dyeing to the, or where the fibers came from before it even ends up in North America where it's sold. not all of that is ever shown. And really interesting fact, if you get a garment that says made in the USA, 
the laws in the United States state that everything has to be produced in America right down to the fiber and the fabric for it to be labeled as made in the USA. Yeah. I think kind of touching more on Alex's point, um, basically what she was saying was that wherever the tag is sewn onto the garment, for a lot of places is where they're going to say the whole piece of clothing was made. So if you have, I'm not totally sure what the laws are everywhere, but just because your tag says like made in Vietnam doesn't mean that the whole garment was made in Vietnam. Like that could just be where the tag was placed on. And it could have traveled to 10 different Mm -hmm. countries to be made. Mm -hmm. A whole other part of the environmental footprint of the garment. (laughs) Yeah. Which is why it's so great to shop local and to shop um, small as well. Did we mention about the under 5% rule for labeling? Oh, no, say it. That's That's such a good secret. So... Uh, If you're ever looking at your fiber content label and you're thinking that the company made a mistake because all of the percentages don't add up, it's a secret in the fashion, about the fashion industry, that if there is less than 5% of a uh, fiber in a garment, you don't have to label it. So they don't have to specify anywhere on that garment, on the labeling, that it exists. Yeah. And that goes for trims as well. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting. (sighs) Trims less than 15%, you don't have to label. So when people do label things that are under 5%, it's usually because they have some sort of value attributed to them. So if you see like 4% cashmere on something... They basically just want you to know that there's cashmere in it. When it's a really, really small percent, it's just for the, it's a buzzword, basically. Anything under 5% could be literally the the remnants on the floor of a factory. Yeah. So if you get yeah. a, if you get a sweater that says cashmere sweater and it says 3% cashmere, it's not a fully cashmere sweater that is marketing on a hang tag for you. We are exposing the fashion industry. <laughs> I feel like we're only exposing the things that need to be exposed, though. The consumers need to know. In quarantine, we are all cleaning out our closets, finding things we didn't wear anymore, didn't like anymore, donating your clothes, or sending them to recycling. Where, where does that go? Are you ready? I've never understood before um, how charity bins work, like the diabetes or the big brother, big sister. I never understood how they worked and how it is, is if you put your clothing or home goods or whatever you're donating into those bins, they sell those goods to bigger reselling places like Valley Village. So Valley Village buys that from them. Whereas if you, and then that money is donated to the cause. And then um, if you just take it directly to Value Village, that is just direct on their part. And another thing about um, the bins that you can donate things to is that they will take more things than Value Village or a local thrift store will. Because what they do is they take everything from the bins, they then sort it, 
and they sell it to all of the different facilities that will Mm -hmm. use it. So all of the wearable clothes, they will sell to Value Village. And then all of the um, scraps or fabrics that are no longer wearable, maybe a spare shoe or something, those are sold to different facilities who either recycle textiles or they get incinerated to create energy. There's lots Mm -hmm. of different places that they're stored. So if you have clothing that is ripped up and destroyed, don't throw it away. There is an option for it to go somewhere. On the topic of recycling, when I was in high school getting more into fashion, I I loved the idea of recycling. How amazing is that rather than just throwing away like your textile scraps from sewing or your ripped and stained t-shirt but did we want to um kind of explain how recycling works like how picky it is and if things aren't labeled they're mixed fiber (laughs) basically um unless something is only made of one fiber um you can't actually recycle it into a new garment so a lot of the times clothing or textiles that end up recycled actually just become like in insulation is that what it's called in Mm -hmm. like insulation for homes or you know like the felt in the back of your like in the trunk of your car they get made into that and a lot of things that like um downcycling yeah it's all downcycled and when we are referring to anything with with a mixed fiber we are referring to either the actual fiber content of the fabric, which could be like a polyester cotton blend or Mm -hmm. a lycra polyester or something like that. But it also refers to the type of thread that they use. If you have Mm -hmm. a cotton t-shirt that is made with polyester thread, you might think, oh. Which they all are. (laughs) Yes, they all are. Because polyester is stronger than cotton is. And so if you have a t-shirt that is made out of cotton and there's no extra pieces to it or anything, you think, great, I can recycle that. But you have to consider the small details that are in there, including what is the tag made out of? What Mm -hmm. is the thread made out of? With your pair of jeans, is there rivets? Is there a zipper in them? Those cannot be recycled at all unless taken to a specific center that will cut the parts of the of the pants or whatever it is with the rivets completely off of it. And as sad as it is, a lot of places are not willing to do that. A lot of places do not want to pay people to cut out little pieces of metal from your jeans and cut off the stitching so that they can recycle the textile. They would rather just make it into either that car insulation or burn it and like people just don't want to put the time into recycling things like textiles and the vicious cycle of wanting something to be designed for disassembly it when you want it to be ta- able to be taken apart at the end of its life is you also want it to be durable enough to last a lengthy life as a pair of jeans or something like that so that's why Back in the day, they put rivets and so much extra stitching into denim so that it could uphold it. But nowadays, we pay so little for our denim that 
it's not high enough quality that we need it to last that long. Yeah. So the rivets and all those metal leather pieces are only put on for aesthetics. Crazy. If the clothes are not sold or thrown in the garbage here in North America, oh. if you live in North America, um, or any first world country, they get shipped over to third world countries. And this is a major problem because nobody wants our textile waste. That is destroying the industries of third world countries. And it is it is taking the opportunity from third world countries to make a living on producing clothing and fabric and mm -hmm. just putting our trash in a different place. Yeah, I think it's something that I didn't fully understand until I watched a CBC Marketplace episode on it. So I would, I think I'm going to try and find it and get it linked in the show notes of this episode. Fully transitioning out of the sustainability section. We have so much more to say on that. We'll do other episodes on that. Um, this is another one that we'll just dip our toes into because there's a lot to say too. The concern, the secret, the misconception is garment size standardization. And I'll leave it there. Chloe. <laughs> okay. So before we get started into this, I would like to state that Extended sizing and plus sizing are both very different things. We will get into this in a different topic or in a different episode, but right now I'm going to talk about extended sizing. When you go into a store and they say that they have extended sizing and you go to the rack and you search for your size and you see that Nothing is either available in your size or a lovely sales associate comes up to you and says, oh, well, you can go online and you can order that size. That is a major problem with the fashion industry. Sizing in general is a major problem within the fashion industry, but companies cater to an idealistic body type. And that is not something that North America has typically. Mm -hmm. More of the population is on average a size 12 to 14 than they are a size 0 to 4. So when companies, when they cater to sizes 0 to 4 and they leave out all of those sizes going all the way up to 14, even into plus size, they are using their branding image to they they're using that as their branding image really mm -hmm. they're saying that these are the people that we want to come into our stores and shop but don't worry if you're a size above you can shop there still but it's only available online because we don't want to carry all of that stock in all of our stores so we're going to leave it in a warehouse and you can order it and by doing marketing like that, they're missing a huge market because if you don't see your body type in the marketing, the images, the models, the runways, then it makes you feel like you aren't intended to shop there. And so you will automatically choose to steer away from those. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of to add on to Chloe's point, it's really sad and I kind of hate that I am going to say this, but the whole idea of only carrying certain sizes also adds to their branding in another way because then you don't see people of a certain size and above going into the store. And I think for brands, that's a really big thing. And that's why they only carry certain sizes online and not in store. Because if you can carry it online, why are you not carrying it in the store? You have the stock and you have the ability to sell it to people. They're choosing not to do it because they're trying to make, they're trying to have their store only showcase their ideal body type, which I think is really unfortunate and it really shouldn't be happening. A lot of stores, a lot Mm -hmm. of stores that you don't, wouldn't necessarily think are very size exclusive, really are. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they get even more size exclusive when they start to do vanity sizing. Yeah whole other thing define that so vanity sizing is when you are when a size let me do an example when you're buying a shirt that says size small on it that shirt is actually a size medium but they are labeling it as a small to make you feel better about make you feel better about having a smaller size on your tag and it also Mm -hmm. goes the other way where stores do it to make themselves look more exclusive because yes they sell a size um double zero to ten but their ten might actually fit like a size six does and it's such a confusion to the consumers because I think it's why you get confused when your size isn't the same across different stores that you shop at yeah like if you're a medium at this one store and you go to another store and you're squeezing into the large or something like that even the sizes that you are based off of numbers like waist measurements are so convoluted now that it's not actually the measurements which makes it really challenging to find sizes and I would like to say that Although there is a lot of stores doing vanity sizes, you also have to consider where the clothes are being made and what body type they're being made for. I'm not necessarily talking about um, numbered sizing in that type of thing, but for example, in menswear, there can be a big difference between uh, shoulder widths and lengths and whatnot mm-hmm. because they're built for different types of people for example yeah. Italian men typically have mm-hmm. broader shoulders and North American men typically have um, more barrel chested these obviously mm-hmm. differ and can be very ranging even within that but that's something to consider as well and it's unfortunate that they don't cater to different body types but lots of stores do cater to tons of body types an interesting contrast we've been discussing recently and kind of noticed is the main companies who are extending their size ranges um are either very small companies just starting out and or fast fashion companies and why do you guys if you believe that's true do you think that is? I think that small companies are doing it because they actually see the potential in being able to market to everyone in every single size 
And I think that smaller companies are also a lot more aware of the issues because they come from more educated backgrounds, either from business backgrounds or fashion backgrounds. So they can see where the gaps in the market are and where they can actually make profit. And if you cater to all of the sizes, you aren't missing out on any market of people. You can sell to everyone. And I think with mass manufacturing and large companies, it comes down to you can, it ticks a couple boxes. You can, with more quantity of product, you can make it for cheaper. So why not make a bigger size range? You have the ability to buy more fabric, which also makes the garment cheaper and you have an ability to sell to a wider size range, which means that you'll have more clientele. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. We want to dive into that one more another day, though. Mm. We hope you learned something, and I wanted to say that we're still learning. We're still amateurs figuring it out, discovering new secrets every day. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at where do we even start? And we'll catch you next Monday. Bye. Bye.